0: Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and it's Serious Trouble. Ken, it's been a good week for uh, audio recordings of former President Donald Trump, I would say, or a good week for us as hosts of a podcast about the legal travails of Donald Trump to the extent that he creates new legal travails for himself that's good for business. And uh, these uh, these audio recordings have been, have been good for that.
1: Yeah, uh, it's not good in a lot of other ways, Josh. I mean, uh, not to be a critic or anything, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so... This is a further illustration about why running your mouth is a bad thing.
0: Yeah. So first, we, we got the audio recording of Donald Trump in that meeting at Bedminster in uh, the summer of 2021 with people who were ghostwriting the autobiography or the memoir of Mark Meadows, who had been his White House chief of staff, discussing – Admiral Mark Milley and how unfair he had been to Donald Trump, and that you know Trump's contention that it was really Mark Milley who wanted to invade Iran all along, and Trump talking about this alleged war plan written by allegedly Mark Milley and saying you know see he was the one who really wanted to do the invasion of Iran, in which Trump famously says because we've seen the transcript now we've actually heard the audio, uh, well let's let's play a little sound of that. Less out I, a, a, yeah. See, as
1: president, I could have deed less. Yeah. Uh, now I can't, you know, but this is yeah classy. now yeah, we have a problem.
0: Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. Yeah. And so, Ken, the former president has spent much of this week trying to explain what it is that he was talking about there, um, saying that he didn't really have the war plan document, that it was bravado, uh, that maybe what he was holding up when he was talking about plans is that he had a plan for a building or a golf course, but so I think part of the important thing to focus on here is that the the legal issue in the case is not actually the Iran war plan. He has not been indicted for possession of that document. The government never found the document. Um, it's not one of the 31 documents found at Mar-a-Lago that he's charged for possessing. So the question of did he actually have that document in his hand at that time – is not actually that legally important. What's really important on this tape is the demonstration that Trump understood that he had not declassified all the documents that he took away with him after he left the presidency, um, that they were still classified then, that makes them still secret, and he's not allowed to show them around to people. That's the important thing for establishing the necessary intent to prove the crimes that he's been charged with.
1: Right, so again, this is a perfect example of this gulf between, what's smart in court and what's smart in public relations. In public relations, the idea, well, I wasn't actually waving around the Iran war plan and, and making brags about it uh, is important. But in the, the case, it's just not. Uh, he, he's demonstrating what his willfulness is with respect to the other documents he retained. And if anything, this argument that he was just engaging in bravado uh, while true, and I'm glad I'm not the one who had to teach him what bravado was and train him to say it, it emphasizes the prosecutor's point. In other words, he knows this idea that he's not supposed to have classified documents and can't declassify anymore. Is, uh, he knows so well that he's using it to bluster and make a point on something else. The other thing to notice here is just how uh, audio recordings uh, yeah, are so powerful. I mean, you got a, what, 150, 175-year-old technology that's still absolutely hosing people because there's no mm-hmm. comparison between testimony about what people said or even a cold transcript and hearing them in their voice, and their idiom, in, in their personality say it. So this tape is terrible for him. Uh, it's, it, it energizes people listening to it. It's exactly the sort of thing jurors love and perks up their attention. Uh, So it's it's a very bad tape for him.
0: Which of these tapes can we expect jurors to hear? Because, I mean, we keep seeing in the media him trying out these new explanations of what he was up to in that meeting, but those explanations likely won't be heard in court, right? His team can't bring his interviews in as basically as his own testimony? Is it basically that the prosecution will be deciding which of these tapes to play and they'll only be the ones with the damaging story?
1: Exactly. So uh, under the hearsay rule, you can bring in any statement of a party opponent that you want, any statement by the other side, in this case, Trump. But you can't bring in your own prior statements because that would be a way to get out of having to testify. So the government can't make a supercut of all the different stories he's told and play it to the jury and laugh at him. But Trump can't do a supercut of say, well, you know, we don't need to testify, just listen to what I've said on TV. You can't do that. But I do expect that they'll find some of the juiciest prior statements and have them keyed up. We've argued before about whether he's likely to testify. I think it would be nigh suicidal, but that doesn't stop him from doing it. Um, But if, if he did, they would obviously impeach him heavily with his past statements, even if he doesn't. I think they're going to bring up the key ones to show his changing, inconsistent story to, to demonstrate consciousness of guilt.
0: One of the talking points he kind of keeps going back to is basically, well, I can't have done anything wrong because I'm not a person who does wrong things, <laughs> which is almost the same as the, the Nixon defense. If the president does it, then it is not illegal, which uh, I, I'm just sort of imagining him. I mean, if you got him on the stand, he probably would make statements like that.
1: He probably would, which is why you don't put him on the stand. But that statement that if Trump does it, that it's not illegal or to modify it a little more accurately, if Trump does it, I don't care if it's illegal, is a perfect mm-hmm. encapsulation of his base, of the way they feel about him. So that's just playing to his base,
0: that whole concept. mm mm-hmm. um, Rudy Giuliani also, uh, speaking of people who are saying things that they probably shouldn't say, uh, we got news reporting that Rudy Giuliani came in for an interview with investigators uh, who are looking into matters related to Donald Trump's post-election activities. Rudy, of course, went around the country filing a number of these very stupid lawsuits trying to challenge aspects of the election results in 2020. And I was really struck looking at this story. I was trying to find the subpoena and basically where the story would say that Rudy Giuliani appeared before a grand jury pursuant to a subpoena. And that's not apparently what happened. It's that Rudy Giuliani sat for an interview with investigators, which must therefore have been a voluntary interview that he could have declined, right? He could have. We're going to put voluntary in quotes because of Rudy's mental state.
1: Uh, But uh, (laughs) yeah, and he, um, he should have taken the fifth if they subpoenaed him to the grand jury. He should have refused to be interviewed voluntarily. And before you ask, was this a good idea? Sarah? Yeah,
0: Ken, was this a good idea? Sarah, goat me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. So no, it was not a good idea. It was a, he's he's obviously a substantial figure in the investigation with exposure on a numerous levels. It was a terrible idea, but it was a very Rudy thing to do. Uh, the completely mm-hmm. misplaced confidence and bluster and sort of the trying to be like Trump, but Not that good. Uh, Not that light.
0: I mean, I I guess this is a very secondary reason that he shouldn't have sat for the interview. But in addition to potential criminal exposure of his own, Rudy Giuliani had been Donald Trump's lawyer – he had certain duties of confidentiality to his client, not to voluntarily answer questions about his representation of Donald Trump, right? I mean, you know, there there could be matters relating to a- activities that were pri- that were privileged, even if they're asking about aspects of the representation that were not privileged. Presumably, as a duty of confidentiality, to avoid answering questions about it to investigators, if he's not legally obligated to. Like, I I, I guess this, I mean. In theory, could Rudy get in trouble with the bar for sitting for this interview?
1: I think that's like the least of his problems
0: with the bar. Because remember,
1: (laughs) there are ongoing issues with him at the bar for the various stupid, crazy arguments he made in court over this whole thing. You know, for all we know, they've already gotten a crime fraud exception ruling from some federal judge that allows them to ask him questions. Although in that case, I think they would subpoena him to the grand jury. Uh, So we don't know exactly what they asked. We don't know what he said, but it sure does seem to be in the zone of things that he ought to be professionally reluctant to talk
0: about. When we say that this is the other prong of Jack Smith's investigation, so he's looking into issues related to the documents at Mar-a-Lago, and then he's looking at issues related to the aftermath of the election in January six. There's sort of a few different things that the aftermath of the election in January six can refer to. One has to do with the riot itself and the possibility that the former president or people around the former president were involved either in planning around that or theoretically involved inciting that riot. Although, as we've discussed a lot on that show, to prove that somebody committed criminal incitement is very difficult. You have to do very specific things in terms of encouraging other people to commit specific imminent crimes. So it's, it's very unusual uh, that you would be in a situation where you actually could be charged with incitement. But that's, sort of, that's one aspect of what it could mean to be looking into what happened after the election. The second has to do with efforts to interfere with the vote count, whether that's with state-level officials and the count that they produce or the slate of electors that they send to Washington – or whether it has to do with Mike Pence and the Congress and trying by means other than the riot to disrupt the the counting of the electoral votes in the Congress. And then the third prong, which has not gotten as much attention, but there's been some uh, some reporting around this, has to do with fundraising. Basically, that the Trump campaign, after the after the election results came out, was sending these fundraising solicitations, basically saying this election was stolen from us. We need you to send us money so that we can, can fight this election fraud that happened and, and show that we really won this election. And there's this idea that that could have been fraud on the political donors, basically telling them that there had been election fraud when you knew that there hadn't been, telling them that you were going to use the money Uh, to fight election fraud in a way that you may not have actually spent the money that way, and the idea that you would basically uh, say that what was claimed in these political fundraising solicitations was so false that it therefore constituted wire fraud. Do we have a sense of of which of those theories Jack Smith is is pursuing right now?
1: Well, we don't have any confirmation. We can only sort of read the shadows on the wall. I don't see anything – suggesting that jack smith is spending a lot of time on the incitement theory that is on the theory that trump uh you know incited a riot through his speech on january 6 that immediately preceded the crowd going over and you know looting the capitol i don't see anything suggesting that they're saying he interfered with the proceedings in the senate that day by directing people to go interrupted. It does certainly look like they are looking hard into the theory that through various legal machinations and and political machinations, he was trying to interfere with states reporting their votes and uh, that type of thing. I think that's clear with the connection to what was going on in Georgia and them giving immunity to at least some fake electors and things like that. There are also definitely uh, indications that Jack Smith is looking into this Uh, donation fraud theory. There are all sorts of indications, subpoenas have been going out about that. This latest story indicates that they asked Rudy Giuliani about that, about fraud in connection with requests for donations to stop the steal. And uh, that was interesting. Historically, the Justice Department has been reluctant to go after donation solicitations in politics on a fraud theory, because it seems like it goes right to the core of political speech And uh, it's a little sticky, but we've seen recently they will do it, especially when the nature of the fraud isn't so much like lying to the public about, you know, whatever you're trying to whip them up about, but lying about where the money's going to go. So we've seen this prosecution of George Santos on that theory. We saw the prosecution of Steve Bannon, who, of course, was pardoned on the theory, again, about soliciting donations for something and then using it for something else entirely. So it it does look they're looking into that. I don't think that Jack Smith is going to go on a theory that Trump and his people knew that he had lost the election, but argued that he hadn't. I think that goes too much to opinion, and it's too hard to make that fraud as opposed to political bluster. I do think it's possible that uh, if they lied about how the money was going to be used, where it was going to be sent, that type of thing, that that could be the basis for a fraud investigation and possibly even a prosecution.
0: It's remarkable to me because so many fundraising solicitation emails that I look at I can just look at them and say this is full of lies, and I don't, and I don't even mean that it's full of lies about like you know they're sending a death panel to kill your grandmother or that sort of thing. There's all these fundraising emails that say things like you know if you send money today, there's going to be a six times match, or it'll say you know the the email looks like it comes from the candidate directly and basically says if you don't send money, I'm going to have to drop out of the race. Claims that are in a, in a colloquial sense false and that are designed to mislead, often you know older people who lack the mental capacity lack lack the faculties to understand that this you know this is not really Donald Trump emailing them personally or even even some of the emails from democrats look like this especially on the on the house of representatives side and so it seems to me that if you're if you're going to start doing prosecutions around that sort of thing that trump might be the most egregious actor but it seems to me like there's a, there's a fair amount of this speech that could get criminal uh, scrutiny without having to touch anything actually related to policy or what the government is doing or what the government ought to be doing. That really is, as you note, directly about what the campaign is doing and whether it's an accurate description of you know what the effect is of giving money to the campaign.
1: I think that's right. Um, I think historically it's been more the Federal Elections Commission that has gone after that type of thing. And I don't think there's any political appetite by either party to start scrutinizing donation solicitations too much. I mean, as, as you said, that nobody is innocent on that. Uh, it's very common for there to be sleazy stuff uh, intended to take advantage of the unwary. So uh, I, I think you, you really only see it resulting in prosecutions in the most egregious cases like so far Santos and ban it. I think that's still the way they're going to keep doing it, and their theory is going to be, you know, no, we're not prosecuting stuff that everyone does. We're only prosecuting the most extreme things.
0: Well, I mean, is it the. the- the Santos case is different, right? I mean, the Bannon case about we build the wall was very similar to what you're articulating might happen here with Trump, which is basically they, they went out and they created this committee and said, we're going to build a private wall on the southern border to keep people trying to come in from Mexico out. Right. And they raised all this money and they didn't spend it on building the wall. And that's, you know, you lied about what the money was, was going to be used for in the campaign committee purpose. The George Santos case is really pretty simply about him stealing the money. Basically, him telling a donor that, you know, if you wire money here, this is going to a political committee. And in fact, it went to a for profit company owned by George Santos. That seems like that's not even really about the activities of a campaign. That's about leading someone to believe they're sending money to a campaign. And in fact, they're sending it to you.
1: Well, I would say it's just on a retail rather than a wholesale level. Uh, there you just have the candidate <laughs> doing the thing personally that in other cases you know, they're doing through direct mail and, and these other solicitations. But that what Santos did distilled down uh, is what they're looking at in, uh, in other cases where it's fundamentally a lie about what the money is for.
0: Let's also talk this week about Bedminster. There was an article in the New York Times about the way that federal investigators have been looking at the president's summer home in New Jersey. They did this unannounced search of his winter home at Mar-a-Lago down in Florida and found all these documents there. There's also a lot of evidence about the the former president having possessed classified documents at Bedminster, including that tape um, where he appears to be waving around the Iran war plan in a meeting that occurred at Bedminster in New Jersey. And and we talked a few weeks ago on this show about could they have indicted him in New Jersey Why didn't they search Bedminster? And there seemed to be some answers to that in this New York Times story, which is to say that they didn't have the same kind of evidence about the documents continued presence in Bedminster that they had down in Florida. And so investigators were not sure that they would actually be able to get a search warrant to look at Bedminster for documents.
1: Right. And first of all, Josh, was he waving around a war plan or was it a golf course plan? I mean, that's the whole who thing. Could, who can say, who could say it? it's all bravado. Uh, right. So one of the things that judges, especially federal judges, want to see uh, in a search warrant application is some indication of, of for want of a better term, freshness. So an indication that, Uh, these things that you say are evidence of a crime, that there's a basis to think they would still be there. So if you've got someplace that, like, it's an ongoing drug operation, then it's reasonable to expect that the drugs and paraphernalia are still going to be there if it was happening yesterday. But if it's something that was happening with documents and the evidence you have about when that happened is uh, a year ago or something, then that's different. Now, I would say most of the time getting a search warrant in say 2022 for things that happened in 2021 is probably fresh enough for most federal judges. But when you're dealing with the former president of the United States and all these heightened political factors, then you're likely to have federal magistrate judges who are a little more nervous about uh, getting it right. So with with Mar-a-Lago, you had extremely contemporaneous evidence that things were still happening like days before the search warrant, indicating that the documents were still there. Bedminster, you had some evidence, but not as much that there might still be documents there. So that's probably why they didn't want to take the shot.
0: The story also says that they interviewed a number of Mar-a-Lago employees, that they had a subpoena for surveillance footage at Bedminster. I assume that they might have tried to establish at Bedminster, in the same way that they did at Mar a Lago, the freshness, the fresh evidence of the presence of the documents, which is to say maybe you could find video of people moving the boxes around. You could interview employees who might have described that, you know, because we know about the former president getting on a plane in Florida, heading to New Jersey with dozens of boxes that uh presumably had documents in them if you had testimony from someone who unloaded the plane and took them to bedminster um if you had video of people moving the documents around at bedminster recently that i assume might have helped you get the search warrant should we just assume that the government was not able to find that evidence we could assume that or
1: we could just assume they were trying to keep it simple in other words if you've got really strong really clear evidence well supported uh for mar-a-lago you may decide let's focus on mar-a-lago uh The idea that you'd rather do the prosecution in New Jersey than Florida may be true, uh, but it also complicates things. And having, in general, multiple uh, locales uh, for search warrants in different jurisdictions and then straightening all that out uh, makes things more complicated. So sometimes when you've got something that's so high stakes and where you're going to be dealing with uh, such significant barriers to prosecution, you want to simplify
0: Isn't there another objective besides trying to have a successful prosecution here, which is that the whole conceit here is that these documents are important, that it's damaging to national security that they're floating around out there. They never found this Iran war plan document. They never recovered any documents in New Jersey, and they have strong evidence that that at some point the former president took documents to New Jersey. It seems likely that these documents are in fact sitting in a box somewhere at Bedminster. Or that Trump has moved them somewhere else. They could be a Trump Tower in New York. Who knows? But if the conceit here is that the government you – know, the, the whole reason we're having this prosecution is the, that it's dangerous that these documents are out there. The government would really like to get them back and store them securely. Isn't that another reason to doggedly pursue these these documents in New Jersey? Because then if you if you do that, you might actually recover them.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's certainly an argument. It's an argument the defense would think about in saying how important are these documents, really. But we don't know. I mean, we don't have like a spreadsheet of every document they got back and when and how. So there were some returns of documents. We don't know whether maybe some of the New Jersey documents went back Uh, To the archives in that group that was falsely represented to be everything. So we're we're speculating. Um, I don't think that there's any chance that they simply forgot or didn't think about this. I suspect that there is some weighing of pros and cons in there that we're not seeing.
0: We've also gotten some of the first orders from Judge Eileen Cannon as she's been supervising this case. And it's this very annoying thing on Twitter where any order comes down, and if the order is unfavorable to the government, then you get, you know, someone who works at a media outlet that's that's friendly to liberals will tweet something that's basically just a description of, you know, the government filed this motion and Judge Cannon denied the motion, dismissed the motion. And then you get all these quote tweets about, oh, there there goes Eileen Cannon rigging the case. Without thinking first about whether her ruling was unreasonable, whether her ruling was unusual, uh, the government should not simply win on every single motion that they file in a case, even if the government is in the right and even if the person should be convicted. And so what what do you make of, of this order about this request where the, the government was basically asking to file a, a list of several dozen witnesses under seal? Because the magistrate judge in the case had said, uh, we're going to have an order that, d- that directs Trump not to discuss the case with certain people who are witnesses in the case. The government was going to say, here's the list of who Trump can't talk to. We want to file it under seal. And Judge Cannon basically Basically said, no, you have to explain to me specifically why this should be under seal. We have media organizations who want to see this list. And so she denied without prejudice the government's motion. The government's allowed to come back and try again and explain why, why the list should be sealed. Uh, but she wouldn't just do what the government asked in this case.
1: You're right that the purpose of this list that was be, to be filed was to identify the people Trump is not supposed to discuss the case with. And the government did file what amounted to a Boilerplate request to file that under seal. Under seal just means that it's not part of the public record. The way the presumption is, things uh, in a public case will be filed so that the public can look at it. Uh, Judge Cannon was right on this, Josh, uh, and but she was right in a way that judges usually aren't. So all too often the government just makes a boilerplate request uh, without any real explanation of why it's needed in this particular case, without any facts, any law, anything like that, and it just gets rubber stamped. And so here, uh, even though Trump didn't uh, oppose the request to file this under seal, the media had filed objections properly under the existing law because the existing law says that there has to be a specific reason that something is being kept under seal and hidden from the public. So Judge Cannon's response to this, although showing a little more due diligence than federal judges typically show on this, was absolutely correct and not something to get exercised about. There are some federal judges who are sort of constantly sticklers about this. Uh, They really want you to explain why something should be under seal in detail. And it can be kind of a pain in the ass if you're the one trying to file something under seal. But it's what they should be doing. Uh, Judges are supposed to keep the record public. Uh, in cases unless there is a specific uh, good reason to keep it private. So this is not Judge Cannon uh, doing something that's unreasonably pro-Trump. Trump wasn't even asking for this.
0: Right. And so in terms of reasons why one might be more fastidious about that in this case than in a normal case, I mean, one might be you're especially solicitous of Trump and that you want to slow the government down, even in a way that the Trump's team didn't ask for. But another sort of more straightforward reason is this case draws much more media attention than probably any criminal case that will be in the federal courts this year. And so the question of whether documents are under seal or not in this case is basically much more important than it would be in most cases.
1: And, I mean, Judge Cannon knows that everyone is looking at her extremely carefully, and a lot of people, very much me, have bashed her prior rulings and called into question whether or not uh, she's going to be fair and impartial in this case. So it's perfectly reasonable that she's going to say, okay, smartass, let's make everything on the record. You point out what I'm doing wrong instead of doing this (laughs) in secret. By the way, Josh, uh, just so our listeners know, next week we have a special episode where we're going to be talking about some issues like this, about how to be a good consumer of legal news and how to be skeptical about these sorts of uh, oh my god, uh, Judge Cannon just did something that's outrageous type stories in the media.
0: Yeah, and and so by the way, just to make clear, just because Judge Cannon handled this motion in an appropriate manner, I we still don't have enough information from observing her to tell what kind of overall approach she's taking to this case. This isn't, you know, a clear sign that unlike in the in the case where Trump sued for the return of the documents, that she's not going to make bizarre rulings in the future. It's just that she hasn't done it yet.
1: Right. Uh, So we'll talk about it more next week. But, you know, the media loves tea reading stories and they like people to come on and say, oh, based on this obscure procedural
0: ruling, I can now determine the end of the case two years hence. Uh, It doesn't work that way. Trump is not the only defendant in this case. Let's not forget about Walt Nauta, the former president's valet who has uh, been indicted alongside him. And so they keep trying to arraign Walt Nauta, and they haven't been able to yet. What keeps going on with these arraignments? Yeah, I mean, really, Josh, how hard is it to
1: arraign a valet? Really, I mean, why is this such a a tough (laughs) choice? So most recently, the problem was he missed a plane and he couldn't get another plane and he was delayed so he couldn't get to court. Let me just say these are not normally excuses you want to come up with for why you didn't show up at your federal arraignment.
0: Uh, Ken, it was such a mess trying to fly around the eastern seaboard on Sunday. There was this fire at, uh, at an air traffic control facility near Washington, D.C., and the, Walt was not the only person who got stuck at Newark Airport on Sunday.
1: I, I, I know. Your, your, your travel is constantly a mess back there. No one else has good bagels. I, I, I hear <laughs> So um, he did get down there. In addition, and the more embarrassing part is that he has not yet been able to hire local counsel. So a lot of the time, many districts, you're required when you have out-of-state, out-of-federal district lawyers, you need at least one local counsel, at least to sponsor uh, your out-of-district lawyers, and, and he hasn't found one yet. And this is just not good optics. Uh, you should be able to find someone. It, it, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be Clarence Darrow, okay? Just find anyone out of the phone book and get them there and say, hi, I'm local counsel, and, and then uh, send them away.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, so, I mean, as I was thinking about why would it be so hard for Walt to find local counsel down there, there's all these reasons why it's difficult for Donald Trump to find new attorneys. We've seen what happens with Donald Trump's attorneys and the infighting and the way that he turns on them, um, and it seems like a real pain to be his attorney. But there's this countervailing thing, which is that it's prestigious to be Donald Trump's attorney, and you can find people who are willing to put up with all that brain damage. I assume if you're thinking about being Walt Nada's attorney, you're just imagining all the mess that can come with being involved on the defense side in a Trump-related representation without the prestige that comes from actually representing Donald Trump. So I can imagine why a lot of lawyers would look at that and say kind of, eh, pass. And I guess your point is like, you can get any DUI lawyer out of the phone book, and that's good enough because he has this counsel that's coming down uh, from the Northeast who also has to deal with Newark Airport whenever there are hearings down there. Although I was interested, there was a write-up by someone from the Lawfare blog who was present for this abortive arraignment where... Not as non local council came up and explained, you know, I, you know, I still can't file motions in here because I still don't have local council with me. One of the things they discussed is, you know, well, where will the next arraignment hearing be? And should we do it in West Palm Beach? Should we do it in Miami? And he was saying that he was hoping not to have to come down for all of these things because they'll have local council and they'll have the local council do it. So I assume they don't really want Saul Goodman. They want someone that they, you know, that they can actually rely on to conduct some of that representation. So this guy doesn't have to come down from the New York area every time.
1: Absolutely. So if, if you want local counsel who is like an integral part of your team, part of the strategy, uh, advising you about local practices and you know the judges and that type of thing, then that can be hard to find the right person. Although again, not this hard. If you just want <laughs> someone to stand in an arraignment or other purely procedural things, uh, it's easy. You know, you can go into the parking lot of the federal courthouse and find a guy who keeps his suit coat in the trunk of his car and pay him 500 bucks and send him in and you're good to go. So um, it, this to me just suggests sort of a a level of, of disorganization on part of the defense team, that, that they don't really have it together. So even though this is controversial, even though there is kind of a stink of Trumpism over the whole thing. It should not be this hard to find someone minimally competent to, to do a local counsel's job.
0: Well, so I, again, from that lawfare write up, it made it sound like the, they were describing the interactions between Nada's attorney and the prosecutors. And it looked at least like the Noda's attorney was approaching this as though this was something that was happening to him uh that you know all of these you know these problems like my client's not here my client doesn't have local counsel i'm in you know this is such a pain in the ass the situation i'm in it sounds like you're saying basically it's you know that's the lawyer's fault
1: maybe not the lawyer himself, because we don't know who he's taking orders from or who's running this defense, to what extent the Trump team has a hand in it, whether they're paying for it, whether they're directing it. But yeah, all the vibes off that lawfare right up of the hearing gave that lawyer a distinct fuck my life type of vibe uh, to the whole thing. But if they are being in effect given marching orders by the Trump team, you can see why it would be a train wreck because that's the, the normal operating function of the Trump legal team, is uh,
0: chaos. Let's talk about Hunter Biden. Absolutely. Um, and uh, some uh, uh, testimony that was released uh, from the, the House Oversight Committee. Looking into the the IRS and and uh, DOJ investigation into Hunter Biden that has led to that guilty plea to, to, to tax misdemeanors and a, and a diversion around a gun offense, and you have some IRS agents saying that there was DOJ interference in here that this should have been charged as felonies, and that the you know there was political interference on down from on high to protect Hunter Biden. And this obviously is not dispositive, but there seems like there's more meat here than there has been in a lot of the previous congressional Republican efforts uh, to make accusations around the the treatment of Hunter Biden. Um, In particular, you have this testimony, and then you also have uh, some contemporaneous email documents uh, after meetings that occurred in the fall of last year. And so first of all, let's talk about sort of the, the general form of the situation here, where you have... IRS investigators and you have prosecutors from the Department of Justice deciding, you know, what should be done about these these crimes that the IRS has been investigating, and the the investigators are unhappy that prosecutors are not taking a more aggressive stance in prosecution. So that is that is something that happens frequently, right? Even in cases that are are not politically sensitive.
1: Absolutely, it's sort of the the default is
0: agents being pissed
1: off that federal prosecutors are not going hard enough. Uh, it's a fundamental to the sort of the relationship between federal agents and federal, federal prosecutors. And it's kind of parallel to the relationship between uh, lawyers representing clients civilly or in criminal defense and the clients. The clients are always saying, why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? Why aren't you going harder? Uh, without a clear sense of how things actually work, so uh, federal agents, particularly IRS agents, are very good at investigating things, um, not as good as they think they are about how prosecutable something is, or the best prosecution strategy, or what the law requires, or, or things like that. So th- this sort of narrative where we think the prosecutors being too lenient, we don't think they're running the case the way we want, they're not following the leads we think they should le- uh, follow is is not at all unusual it's if it's if anything it's the default i I can't tell you how many times as a prosecutor i had agents saying you should be doing this you should be doing that we should go after this person and in a lot of it was some sometimes it was sensible sometimes it was sheer nonsense you know Mm -hmm. i I always tell people that I, i remember the time an ncis agent was yelling at me for not prosecuting someone for flying the flag at night and it wasn't like because i was you know soft on uh, (laughs) anti-Americanism is because that's not a fucking thing. okay? so consume consume federal agent gripes about prosecutors not going hard enough with that cultural thing
0: in mind. And so here the dispute would have been over whether Hunter Biden should have been prosecuted for felony tax evasion um, or for. They,
1: They were looking at a variety of things that they thought they should more vigorously uh, pursue him for or charge him for. They're also saying, basically, we thought him we, sh- we should go after him in different jurisdictions, like California, right. as well as here. Uh, and, and all sorts of things. And for actions
0: related to his 2014 taxes, including in addition to his 2017 and 18 taxes.
1: Exactly. So I don't think you can dismiss this out of hand, and I'm not suggesting you do. I think you would want to find out more details. But I also don't think you should consume it too credulously So because it's very typical for agents to have these views that you're not being harsh enough. The other thing that just structurally, I don't really buy the concept that the way the fix is in is that we're going to prosecute him publicly, but we're just going to do a little more gently than we otherwise could have. That, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense as a way that the fix gets in because so few tax cases get prosecuted uh, out of all the tax cases out there. Uh, You know, one in a million, uh, almost literally. The gun charge almost never gets prosecuted the way we talked about before. It would have been childishly simple just to deep six this whole thing and him never get prosecuted. And that, if anything, would have caused less scrutiny. Because the thing about actually prosecuting him is then you've got all this scrutiny into the process and the paperwork and the details and exactly what they know about him. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that the way we're going to have the fix be in is that we're going to do it somewhat more gently, but we're still going to prosecute him.
0: Well, but I mean, in most cases, it wouldn't be noticed if you don't bring a tax prosecution. How would they have explained if they had decided not to prosecute Hunter at all? I mean, everybody knows that he didn't file his tax returns initially in 2017 and 2018. Uh, and as, as we've discussed, there's a lot of questions about how difficult it would be to prove felony tax evasion here, to prove that you know Hunter, while he was on these benders, had the necessary willfulness to intentionally evade taxes here. But isn't this misdemeanor charge that he pled to, isn't that sort of a slam dunk? And given that there was so much attention to this case, I don't know how prosecutors would have explained that they weren't even bringing these misdemeanor charges.
1: Josh, the IRS every day doesn't prosecute people who didn't file taxes, usually because they eventually pay the taxes belatedly. So what they would have said, right, they would have said, as in the vast number of cases where someone doesn't file taxes, Hunter Biden, paid his back taxes with penalties and interest, and under the guidelines for federal prosecution, as in the vast number of these cases, we didn't prosecute. And and all of that would have been through in terms of how the system normally works. So that's why I am I, skeptical of this narrative that there's this elaborate conspiracy and the result of the conspiracy is he does get federally prosecuted.
0: But isn't there a point at I mean, you've talked about that, you know, the, when these things get investigated, they sort of, they get put on a civil track or a criminal track. And once you're on a criminal track, it's on the criminal track. Isn't there a point at which you have not paid up those taxes once the government is looking at prosecuting it criminally? Where the usual expectation would be that even if you belatedly make that payment, the, the you'll be prosecuted. I mean, you can't show up in court on the first day of your trial with a check and say, here, I'm paying back the taxes. Let's dismiss the charge.
1: No, but if it was done years ago, then that would be very much on a track where it's likely to be resolved administratively. Uh you got to understand the volume of cases we're talking about here where the IRS determined someone never filed their taxes and how vanishingly few people ever get prosecuted for that. And so the cases where somebody pays their back taxes that they didn't file and then still gets prosecuted are relatively few.
0: But, I mean, it wasn't done years ago. My understanding is that Hunter only settled up about a year ago, many years after these taxes were due.
1: Right. So, I mean, even a year ago, though, continuing to pursue him after that is not par for the course. Again, I, in a way, as I th- think I said last episode, someone who's not Hunter Biden going through this probably doesn't get prosecuted uh, for either of these charges. This isn't to say, I want to make it clear, that there wasn't some uh, attempted political influence here. Uh, You know, DOJ can be kind of a rat's nest. And it's totally plausible that there were different people trying to put their fingers into things, thinking they were helping the boss. Uh, It's even possible, certainly, that there's some higher up, maybe all the way to Joe Biden himself. I'm not discounting that. I'm saying that uh, we should be a little skeptical about uh, reading this outcome the way that the Republicans in Congress are wanting us to read it.
0: Well, I mean, and the other thing I would notice is that it's not the case that DOJ is actually supposed to treat Hunter Biden like any other potential defendant, that the, it's actually official practice that you're supposed to be more inclined to prosecute high profile cases, because that's supposed to be more useful at creating deterrence. If you have somebody like Lori Laughlin uh, who is bribing a, a college admissions officer, and then you you send her to jail and that's covered in the newspaper, that does more to discourage other people from committing crimes than if you do that to some anonymous person. And so the fact that this is a high profile case is actually a valid reason why you might be more inclined to prosecute than you would be in some other case. I want to talk about a, an actual dispute of fact between the, uh, the, the IRS whistleblower and prosecutors in this case, because as, as we've discussed, you know, you can have different opinions about what the right way is to prosecute this, whether they should have charged higher, that sort of thing. And, and that's sort of a par for the course, that, you, that different people in the government will have different views about what you should do, that agents might have a more aggressive view. Um, but there is this claim that the whistleblower has made, uh, that back in October, that, that he and other IRS investigators had a meeting with David Weiss, who was the US attorney for Delaware. Again, that Trump appointee was held over into the Biden administration, continued to oversee this case. And that Weiss told them that he was not the decider about whether charges would be filed, uh, that, they, that he wanted to bring charges in Washington, D.C. or in Los Angeles, where certain conduct had occurred uh, that would be easier to charge more seriously than conduct you could charge in Delaware, um, that he'd been denied his request to bring charges in those places. And they have an email uh, that was sent internally in October of last year from the whistleblower, Gary Shapley, uh, that says, quote, Weiss stated that he is not the deciding person on whether charges are filed. I believe this to be a huge problem inconsistent with the OJ public position and Merrick Garland testimony unquote. Now, as Shapley notes in, in that email, if that was true, that David Weiss was not the person who decided whether to bring charges, that David Weiss was not allowed to bring charges that he wished to bring in a different district. That is inconsistent with things the DOJ has said publicly. It's also inconsistent with something that David Weiss himself has said publicly. He sent an email uh, earlier in June uh, to a Republican uh, committee chair in Congress saying that he was allowed to bring charges in whichever district he wished uh, and that he had that, that full authority to make that decision. And so this, you know, the, the, someone has to be incorrect about this. Either uh, Gary Shapley is right that David Weiss was prohibited from bringing charges in other districts when he wished to do so and that that would have allowed a stronger prosecution. Or you can take the statements made publicly by David Weiss and Attorney General Merrick Garland and Matthew Graves, who is the U.S. attorney for Washington, D.C., all saying that it was up to David Weiss where to file charges and that he didn't seek to file charges in Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles. It seems like eventually we'll figure out who's telling the truth about that factual matter. And I think that will really inform the way that we should look at the dispute here over certain matters of opinion about how Hunter Biden should have been handled.
1: Sure, we could. And and let me I mean, yes, there's a possibility that that Weiss is a Trump appointee and there's no indication that he has a history of being in the tank for Democrats or for Biden. Uh, has been lying uh, in public and including to Congress about who had the authority here and the Department of Justice is lying with him uh, to create this huge conspiracy. The other possibility is that he did say that to these agents, but he was shining them on. It's a totally DOJ thing to do. You've got these two agents saying, basically, you know, we want to prosecute this crackhead for not filing his taxes in three different districts at once because it's the greatest fucking case ever. And the AUSA says, you know, guys, I lo- that is so smart. That is such a good idea. Good for you. But you know what? It's not my decision to make. Unfortunately, I can't do it. That is a super DOJ thing to happen for the person to deflect responsibility, to get the agents who think this is Watergate off of his back and deflect and do it the way he wants to do it, to say, sorry, it's not my call. Uh, it, it, for any institution, you know, Josh, it's like that. You know, passing the buck, blaming somebody else. I think that is by far the more plausible reason. So the agent's not lying about what Weiss said. Weiss was lying to the agent in that meeting.
0: But um, well, but Weiss. I mean, you say an AUSA. Weiss is, wasn't an AUSA. He was the U.S. attorney for the great state of Delaware. It would be it would be improper for him to to falsely claim to the agent that uh, that this wasn't his call when it was right. Yeah, I guess. But I mean,
1: uh, I, I I don't think you're ever going to see someone prosecuted for saying, hey, it's out of my hands. You know, sorry. Uh, <laughs> that's beyond my control. That's that's very much an institutional bureaucratic thing. It happens all the time. Uh, could there be this vast conspiracy where they've turned Weiss, a Trump appointee, and he is lying to Congress about this? Sure, it could be. I, I just don't find it very plausible.
0: And so then how will we learn more about this? Uh, the, this, you know, this is clearly something that has more legs. This, the, you have mainstream media taking this seriously in a way that it has not taken seriously other Republican congressional complaints about the Hunter Biden investigation. I think for good reason, because there's, you know, there, there's a more plausible story here than there's been in some of the others. I assume that you'll have Congress trying to get these people in to question them under oath about exactly what this process looked like. But I also assume DOJ is generally reluctant to publicly discuss its internal deliberations leading up to prosecuting decisions. So what what will we actually learn about who said what to whom inside DOJ?
1: I think that they will very much resist revealing information about the process, about how the decision was made, who was there, what they said. I think we might see some more documents like this email, some more contemporaneous communications or maybe further documents that sort of tell Weiss that this is yours to run and you make the decisions. Uh, but the thing is, we know we're, we're never going to get an answer where everyone says, oh, okay, well, that's the answer then. Glad we cleared that up. This is a, a political argument, largely. The, uh, the Republicans don't care whether the allegations are of political interference are true or not. They care about using as a club against Joe Biden. The Democrats don't care whether it's true or not. They care about protecting Joe Biden. So this is just going to be stuff that's going to be argued out without any real concern about what the true answer is.
0: But I mean, but if we get those documents, we might learn something more about what the true answer is, even if that's not the objective of the committee.
1: Well, we will learn more of the evidence of what the true answer is. But I don't think anyone's ever going to say, oh, yeah, the other side was right. Sorry, Mm -hmm. I could imagine seeing stuff that would either make me more confident that Weiss always did have the whip hand that it was always his decision to make or that could undermine that. I could see that anyway. But I don't see the Republicans or the Democrats ever saying, "Okay, yeah, you guys were right.
0: Why don't we leave it there for this week? Ken, thank you so much for speaking with me about some additional serious trouble. Always lots of fun, Josh. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadic mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosher. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more soon. See you next time.